This is the word of God that is eternally true. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Amen. Let's pray for God's help this morning. Father, we pray that your spirit would enlighten our hearts and minds this morning to know the truth, to believe the truth, and to change life. It's in Christ's spirit. So as we begin the book of Ephesians, um, just a reminder of who the church in Ephesus was. This is a church that was founded in large part by Paul, and Paul had a special affinity for it. He spent two years there in Ephesus helping to start the church, and it's also where several things that you probably have some memory of happening happened. So the store, the the crazy story of the sons of Sceva, seven sons of Sceva, who were casting out demons, and they go in to cast out a demon, the demon says, I know Paul, and I know Jesus, but I don't know you, and then the demon, demonic man, beats the seven sons up, and they run out of the house bleeding and naked. That was that. And after that event, thousands of people became Christians. And many of those who became Christians were practicers of witchcraft and sorcery and took all their wicked books out of the streets and burned them in the streets. The value of which was 50,000 pieces of silver, which is millions of dollars worth of materials that they had collected in Ephesus. Artemis, the god, was the great god of Ephesus. And because all these people gave up all their witchcraft and practices, according to the deity of Artemis, uh, the silversmiths who made all the idols lost a bunch of business and started a huge riot in the town, where for several hours they got all the people of Ephesus riled up and they were shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And then they had to be settled down and were almost jailed for their ridiculousness, and the, basically the mayor of the town had to settle the crowd and said, guys, you can't write like this, but Romans do not like us when we're out of control. Settle it. Uh, all of that stuff happened in Ephesus. Thousands of people coming to faith, um, all happening in this one town in basically the region of Turkey. And then Paul stays for two years and builds the church. And then right as Paul is getting ready to be sent off to Rome, so he's going to Jerusalem 
And he knows he's going to be arrested and then taken to Rome. He stops by, well, he doesn't stop by, he passes by Ephesus and he calls the Ephesian elders to him. And this is also one of the things that is important to keep in mind as we're reading this letter, which came several years later. When Paul last saw the Ephesian elders, he says this to them. It's in Acts chapter 20. And now behold, I know that none of you among them I have gone about claiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. What a, an amazing thing to say. I have told you everything from the counsel of God. It's been two years with you. I've declared everything. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. Remember, he's talking about the elders, the pastors. Pay attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So he puts a lot of weight on the Ephesian elders. God bought the church in Ephesus with his blood. Be mindful of that. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Remember that for three years I have not, sorry, it's two years, two years. Three years I have not ceased neither day to admonish everyone with tears. Can you imagine a pastor who is here? Three years with you. Those departing words to your leaders is keep careful watch on yourselves and the flock. There are fierce wolves who will rise up from among you, twisting the way. And because Paul was an apostle and prophesying truly, fierce wolves did arise in Ephesus. We'll see some of that in his letter that he wrote back to Ephesus. About some of these false teachings. But then remember that last year I preached through 1 Timothy. And Timothy was sent two or three years after this letter to help settle things down in Ephesus. And so Paul hears of things happening in Ephesus that he prophesied would happen in Ephesus, and things don't get resolved, and so then he sends Timothy to finish settling things down in Ephesus. So this is the tank. It's also the one of the seven cities that uh, uh, Jesus writes letters to in the book of Revelation. And it's worth noting the letter to the Ephesians. And so I'm going to read it. Um, this is in Revelation chapter 2. To the angel in the church of Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven gold lampstands. I know your works toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. So they finally, with the help of Timothy, said no to the false apostles. They listened. I know that you are enduring patiently, bearing up for my namesake. You have not grown weary. But I have 
practice against you, that you have abandoned the love of that first. Remember, therefore, for wearing with fallen, repent and do the work you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the new relations, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So the thing that happened in Ephesus was basically they, they finally followed the council and rejected the false apostles and the false teachings that were in the midst. But then, then they began to become cold, calculating churches that were closed off and hung up. So uh, they were admonished by Christ at the end. We don't have the full history of the church in Ephesus, so I can't tell you exactly what all transpired in that for the next 2,000 years. Um, but I think that this is often what happens. A church that has to, has to become firm in some ways and becomes reclusive in others. And I think, because of this, that our church probably falls under that. Um, we had to become very firm at that point. In the midst of pretty clear, bad stuff happening from the super apostles, the leaders of the PCUSA, right? Once you said, hey, marry whoever you want, Gay ministers are okay, and it was very bad. And what we have to fight from that is not becoming closed off to the world. So being soft still, and not just having a hard line. And we will draw this little stone in the sand and have one put. Um, I don't think that's us yet. I think it could be us. The danger is always. When we have drawn a line and we've stood firm in it, we begin to be defined by our line drawing rather than the love of Christ. And so one of the ways that we need to break through that is things like Christianity Explored, but not the program Christianity Explored, but just the willingness to go out and to meet and to welcome sinners in our midst who will have false beliefs, false teachings, false knowledge that will need to be constantly straightened out. And so even though we have found the path, and I think have walked it well, we need to find other people to walk with us and help them. Knowing that just because we got this right doesn't mean we're right about everything and every sin, but we are continually growing in holiness and godliness as a church. So that's part of the way thinking why Chose the birth of First Timothy and what I'm preaching to you with Ephesus Ephesians. I think it's helpful for our church specifically. So back to then the few verses we're looking at this morning, the opening lines. Paul opens almost all of his letters in a very similar way. Uh, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a very uh, typical entrance to his letters. And I don't I want you to think that because it's the typical way Paul treats, greets his uh, audiences that he's not trying to teach us something there. He is trying to teach us something. Uh, one, that grace and peace belong to us as Christians. So the grace of our Lord and the peace that comes from that grace belong to us 
And he always, almost always, references the Father, God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And there really are two great, big truths that walk side by side through Scripture about God. And we spoke about that when, we were, when I was preaching through Genesis. The Lordship of God, the Creator God, the Owner of God, the one who rules and reigns, who owns all things and is Himself completely other. God, the Lord, and God the Father. That He did not just make the world in order to have a world, but He made the world to have sons. And we know this explicitly. Because Adam in Luke chapter 3 is called the Son of God. On and on through history, it's more and more revealed that the purpose of the image bearing people that God made was so that he would have children. Fatherhood of God, the Lordship of God, both of them running concurrently through Scripture. And Paul reminds us constantly that those are the two great truths that we have to embed in our heads about who God is and how He acts. A side note that I think I've mentioned from the pulpit, I've definitely talked about in Sunday school, is this word Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not going to get into all the technical stuff. We've talked about it technically in Sunday school, but almost every single time you see Lord. It's applied to Jesus in the New Testament is an explicit claim to Jesus being Yahweh, Jehovah God. It has to do with translation stuff that was happening at the time. But the word Lord in the New Testament means Yahweh. I am who I am. That is what the declaration means. And so when he introduces his letters and says, God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, God the Father and God the Son. That's what he's saying. Father, Son, Father, Lord, God. So, that's how he opens. And then, then he begins to walk us through this great bursting forth of the truths about God and how he does great things. Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavens with all spiritual blessings. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons. So right there, I'm going I'm to kind of park on this this morning. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons to Jesus Christ. In love, he predestined us. You may think that I've talked about this doctrine plenty enough. Um, but the reason I talk about it is because it's just, it's just all over the place. It's just everywhere in Scripture. This doctrine of election, predestination, choosing of God for some of these people. And because it's got a bad reputation for many reasons, uh, in the last 150 years in America, we tend to think of this doctrine of predestination, election, as kind of a cold, calculating doctrine. It's not one. It's just God chose people. He didn't choose other people. It's just like this. You think of God as like going through a stack of books and stamping some 
and not stand together. So it's just this chosen, not chosen, chosen, not chosen. And God just randomly, for whatever reason, chose some, didn't choose others. And it's just this, it's just this dry truth. It's not dry. It's not cold. It is exclusively one of the warmest doctrines in Scripture. Because the point of election was what? In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons. But the point of election, predestination, is not are you predestined or are you elect? It's sonship, fatherhood. That's where it was going. You can kind of view the whole of history through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus as being the full point of it is so that we can become the sons of God. Everything leading up to that point was a gift given so that we might become the sons of God. And everything falling out of that, all the gifts that we received, eternal life, imperishable, unfading, all the gifts of the Spirit, all those things come to us because we are sons of God. And all the things leading up to it, things like election, predestination, things like hearing the gospel, believing the gospel, having a new heart, justification by faith through grace, all of that is so that we could become a son of God. So all those pre-Christ gifts, until we finally receive him by faith, and are adopted into the family of God, and are able to cry out by the Spirit, Abba, Father, so that we become a son of God. And all the things we get for all eternity are because we are sons of God, the heirs of Christ. That the pinnacle, the whole point, is so that we can become the sons of God. And so all the gifts that flow from it are cherished because they come from our good Father. And all the gifts that preceded it, that gave us the right to become children of God, are cherished because they made us sons of God. Now, it's difficult to have any real grasp of the nature of this in the world. But we're going we're gonna to walk through a couple of examples that will give you some of an idea of the bigness of this, this doctrine of predestination towards adoption. So adoption in general, if you just like, pull it out of the heavenly adoption and just talk about adoption in the world. A lot of adoption happens, like the act, the prerequisite to the finality of adoption happens months and sometimes years in advance. A couple decides we would like to adopt. A couple goes through a process to get approved by an organization that says you're allowed to adopt. A couple gets money because it actually costs quite a bit in the United States at this point to adopt. Anywhere between twenty and forty thousand dollars depending on various things to adopt. And that's both nationally, someone here in the States being adopted, or internationally. And then after all of that, which may take one, two, three, five years, then the waiting happens, and then finally a child is born 
that child is given to the adoptive parents in the final act of the court to say that this child is yours by right happens. And that child is yours. And all of those things leading up to it, does that child have any idea that any of that stuff happened? Does he understand all the paperwork and all the time and all the tears and all the money that were spent in order to get him? No, but it did happen. It was all the prerequisites. We do not understand fully all the things that God has done for us in order to get us. But we do know some of them. And all the ones that we know should make us eternally grateful for how hard He worked to make us His own. And this doctrine of election is the most ancient of them. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of when God, in whatever way it happens, in eternity past, before he ever made the world with all that there is, said, that's going to be us. That's going to be my God. And I'm going to work for all the many thousands of years before they ever become a person to make them I'm going to make everything happen so that that person on that day is mine. Everything. Working towards your adoption as a son of God. It's an impossible thing to fathom because it happens individually to every one of us at the same time. But everything in the world that has ever happened, if you were a Christian, happened because you were elect. In God before the foundation of the world, and He moved heaven and earth together. We have some idea of that in earthly adoption that could take a few years. God, in eternity past, began to work to adopt His children. Whereas we, when we adopt, we don't generally know who the child will be, boy girl. We're just working on adopting someone. God knew us specifically. Individually. Terminally. In his mind. Fixed. Before he ever said let there be light. Before the birds flew in the air. Before Adam ever saw Eve. Before they ever fell in the garden. Before Cain ever killed Abel. Before your parents ever met. God said children, and they will be my children through the blood of my son Jesus Christ, and they will be mine forever, and it is irreversibly true. It cannot fail, because I am an unfailing, unrelenting God, and will gain all that I desire to gain. So this doctrine is ancient. It's the first thing. We tend to think the first thing is let there be life. First thing was not like what? First thing was, he will be my son, she will be my daughter. <laughs> and that happened in whatever way it happened in the mind of God before anything else. I've brought it up before, but there's a, another letter to a pastor named Titus in the New Testament. And he says this. 
Paul says this to Titus. Paul, the servant of God and the apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. before the age of the hand. Who is there to promise you to? Who was there before God said, let there be light? Nothing created. Because he had not created anything. The ages had not come on. God promised within himself Get his elect. And he never lies. He is an unstoppable force because he has a promise and he will not fail. And so, this doctrine of election, and we think of it as just like this dry, you know, strict, you know, cold, calculating stamp of God, is the most personable important foundational thing to our salvation, without which we would have no hope of coming into Christ. Because what do we know happens after the creation? Fall. And in the fall, in Adam, we all die and are dead in our trespasses and sins and enemies of God. Without hope, always doing evil. Our mouths are open graves. We have no hope. And so if God didn't do this, God didn't promise, if he did not elect, there would be hope for no man ever. And so it is the foundation, not just of our salvation, but the ground of our hope that this is true. And Paul says as much. If you continue to read in Ephesians 1, which we'll preach, I'll preach on in a couple weeks, but listen, he, he doesn't stop here with the beginning of his adoption of sons. He says this in verse 11 of Ephesians. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believe in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of the Spirit. The promise of God in his Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, before the foundation of the earth. The Spirit is our guarantee. How sure is our faith? It is absolutely 100% sure, because the Spirit himself said, I am the earnest one. That's all based on this thing that happened long before anything ever was outside of God. In love, he predestined us for adoption of sons to Jesus Christ according to the counsel of his will. We know this from Scripture. We need help of believing this from Scripture. Because this doctrine is mind-boggling. Mind-boggling. 
think about ways in which we can emulate this sort of planning and preparation that we do in advance. The closest we might be able to come is something like this. Several of you, most many of you are grandparents, right? Imagine right now, as a grandparent, who maybe let's pretend like you have grandchildren who are just being and you decide, I am going to have in my will something to bless my grandchildren for a long time. Right? This is common. Right? You grow older, you decide, okay, I'm going to change my will from being my kids to my grandkids. Maybe this happens all the time. And so I'm going to take you out to just this weird historical anomaly that that can be a very long time until that is realized. So John Tyler, the 10th president of the United States, the early 1800s as living grandchildren. 200 years. There's weird reasons why that happened. John Tyler lived a long time. He got married when he was really old and had children with a very young woman. Okay? That's how that happened. But John Tyler could have begun planning that in 1810. I will bless my children through this inheritance that will be theirs and that will go to my grandchildren. And it could just now be being realized. That's about as long as we get in our current age. That's, that's an anomaly. Usually it's much, much shorter until we realize that. And there are all kinds of things that can go wrong with our plans. Think about this, right? So the stock market, I don't keep up with hardly at all, uh, but I did read yesterday by happenstance that Verizon tanked yesterday and something else tanked and we now lost a thousand points, which is a fairly large chunk of points, as I am made to understand. Again, I don't follow this right We know from history that bad things can happen to investments. And much of our planning for our children and grandchildren is based on the stock market not completely collapsing. All things, all kinds of things outside our grasp can go wrong when we're trying to bless someone. Even if we plan and plan and plan it. There is a surety to the predestinating love of God. That is not just God is a very good planner and he knows all things. It is the third person of the Trinity. He is the surety that this will actually come to pass. And God, the Holy Spirit, cannot lie. This grounding doctrine, the Trinitarian promise of the election of his children, is foundation for us. He holds us, keeps us. And when we fail and sin and do all kinds of things that displease him, brings us back to him. This is how Paul can write to Timothy in Ephesus this, which is just like the most It's the most Christian experience in the world. 
So this is in 2 Timothy, chapter 2. Paul says, this saying is trustworthy. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. Okay, I've, I've died with Christ. He is mine. I've given up my life for the sake of his. I've taken my cross daily. I've followed him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. I'm enduring. I'm doing the work. I'm following along. I'm suffering for his sake. I'm doing it well. I'm dependent on the Spirit. If we deny him, he will also deny us. All the wind out of our sails. Who, who among us does not believe? Who denied Christ on the night of his execution three times with cursing? We have all said and done things which deny the Lord who bought us. And then Paul says he will, he will deny us. And now we're, we're in this horror of the Christian experience of feeling the weight of our sin in a way that grieves us to our bones and makes us shame. Just like Peter, who went out to the cockroach and saw the eye of Christ across the field and he wept bitterly. Then Paul says, if we are faithless, he will remain faithful because he cannot deny himself. What's that about? What's about this? In the ages past, Trinitarian promise that they will, God will, absolutely, without fail, bring the sons to him. And that even if their faith is out, that he will remain faithful. Christ will remain faithful because he cannot deny himself. He made a promise. Now, this does not give us an excuse to go walking around faithless. This gives us hope when our faith fails, which happens. When we think about that decision, that choice, that person, that word, that time, and we go, no way. No way can I actually be a son of God. No way. No son of God would ever do the thing that I have done, say the thing that I have said, believe the thing that I have believed, walk the way I walked. There's no way. And we all have times like that. Sometimes they're very poignant. Sometimes they are fleeting. But they all happen. And at those times, this doctrine, this tremendous doctrine of predestination, election, chosenness, the promise of God amongst himself, rescues us from our faithlessness. Keeps us in our denials, watches over us in our stumblings and wanderings, and brings us back. So I don't want us to go through life thinking that this doctrine has nothing for me, and it doesn't matter if I know it, it doesn't matter if I believe it, it doesn't matter. It does matter. It doesn't matter ultimately, right? Just like the son who's adopted doesn't have to understand the court proceedings that made it possible. He is adopted. But the more he understands the things his parents went through to get him, the more secure he becomes in his sonship. It says, well, my parents went through all kinds of stuff to get me. Hold on, I'm theirs. 
This is where it starts. The doctrine of election. The doctrine of predestination. The goodness of God for all eternity will be working to bring his sons to faith. And this is the foundational truth before anything happens in our lives. Before we ever hear the gospel, before we ever pray a prayer, sing a song, think a thought, there is a Father who has sent a Son and by the power of the Spirit is going to cast without fail, absolutely, because he did cannot lie. He cannot. Promise. Trinitarian promise. For our sake, for the foundation of the world. I'm going to pray for us briefly, and then we're going to take communion together. Father, we are very grateful for the kindness of your Son, Jesus Christ, for the great love of the Father, and the power of the Spirit to bring us to life and to make us joy. We pray that it would be a precious truth to us, that when our faith fails, that we would remember that your Son will not fail, and that your Spirit will give it yourself as our oath and our surety, and our firmest we will.